Screenless. Making a soundtrack. Welcome to Making a Soundtrack Season 2. Hi, Dan. Hello, Dan. Opening scene and action. Dan? What on earth's that? Is that... Is that a TARDIS? <laughs> oh, hey, what so, on earth is going on, Dan? Sorry, I'm late. I've just come from the end of the series. It's really good. It's Honestly, it's really good. You wait till you hear my new catchphrase. It's fantastic. <laughs> why, why were you in a TARDIS flying around? Well, have you not got one? No. I thought everyone had one. I was thinking about asking this week's guest for, you know, see if he was able to swing a little trip in the TARDIS, but no. But you've managed it. Yeah. You've gone to the end of the series, you've come back, it's really good. It is really good. That's really great. No one's listening, but it is really good. <laughs> Fantastic. This series is slightly different to last series, isn't it? Indeed. We're not sticking to the same format. We all know that the composer writes the music for a soundtrack, but what about all the people we don't see or hear about? Yeah, including someone I brought back with me. What, from the end of the series? Yeah, from the end of the series. Ooh, I thought he may as well do the rest of it. Is he on lockdown in the TARDIS at the moment? He is on lockdown in the TARDIS, yeah. So he's going to be transmitting live from inside the TARDIS? He will be, yes. So who have you brought back from the end of the series to help us navigate through this orchestral landscape? It's Tristan Noon. Tristan Noon, the composer and orchestrator. That's the fella. For all the composing stars of orchestral soundtracks. Indeed, and previous guest. Well, that's very exciting. Yeah, isn't shall it? We, uh, shall we see if we can connect to the TARDIS and see if Tristan is there. Tristan? Tristan? Are you there, Tristan? Hello, guys. Are you there? Hello. Hello. Tristan, you've worked in some major orchestral studios with lots of great composers on some amazing soundtracks, haven't you? Yeah, I've, I've been doing that for a few years and it's been a great honour to do that. I was watching Emma, recent movie, on the weekend and uh, as is my want, I invariably have the IMDb app open because of the what was she in, what was he in questions that <laughs> are always flying around. And I dipped into the sound department section and who was there as the copyist but Tristan Noon. What was it like working on that movie? Oh, it was great fun, as it always is with any TV show, you know, film or video game. Just a great pleasure to be able to work with the finest musicians in the country, if not in the world. And they're sight reading it straight off the sheet music, so it's just a joy to be able to listen to and, and work on those sorts of projects. It really struck me that this is what this series is about, because I didn't watch... Emma thinking, ooh, sounds like that was copied really well into the score. While you had a really important role in that whole production process, there are lots of people in the production process for orchestral scores who aren't obviously connected. So we want to shine a light on all those people, don't we? Yeah, it really does highlight the kind of element of teamwork that's involved. I actually worked with Simon Whiteside, who is a brilliant orchestrator and copyist. And also a composer as well mm. <laughs> on that job. And uh, it really does highlight that it's a team effort, you know, in orchestration departments, copying departments, and sometimes even composing departments where there are additional music composers. So I think this series is really going to, as you say, shine a light on that. And I'm really looking forward to it. Over the course of the series, we're going to be focusing on each of these jobs, starting with the composer. Yeah. 
The composer is the person who comes up with the music. We're quite excited to present our guest today, who is... So this week, I'm going to be talking to Sagan Akinola, who is an established composer for film and television, and best known for his music in the latest incarnation of Doctor Who, starring Jodie Whittaker. Ah, hence why you're sitting in a TARDIS. Exactly. Dan, you're a big fan of this season's guests. Sure am. Uh, so are you up for a challenge? Always up for a challenge, Gareth. Great. For every episode, we need some facts about each guest. So for episode one, we need facts about Sagan Akinola in a brand new section called Fandango. As a boy, Sagan learned to play piano and drums. He's a graduate of both the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire and the National Film and Television School. He's a talented juggler and can often be found in the kitchen entertaining his friends and family by juggling tea bags. In 2017, he was a BAFTA breakthrough Brit. His favourite item of stationery is a stapler. As well as providing the score to the TV show Doctor Who, Sagan also scored the critically acclaimed VR experience Doctor Who The Runaway. He's allergic to kumquats, his favourite colour is orange, and he once ate a biscuit whilst doing a handstand. Hmm... I'm not sure all of those facts are true, are they, Dan? Mm, some of them might be truer than others. Sagan, thanks very much for joining us today and congratulations on the release of the Doc 2 Series 12 soundtrack. Thank you very much. So let's dive straight in really. I mean, when you get that call and are hired for the job, how do you prepare and how are you kind of managing your time and deadlines? It very much depends on when I'm brought in and that can obviously differ because sometimes it's really early, sometimes it's whilst they've started filming. Um, I rarely ever get asked at the moment certainly to come in at a point where they have everything totally done usually the, the edit is at least still happening and then it very much depends on the actual job and my relationship with those who are actually doing the work and am I working directly with so for example on Doctor Who I'm working very very directly with executives because I'm working with the showrunner Chris Chibnall and Matt Strevens predominantly whereas on something else I'm working directly with the director and the editor and then there's more of a producer kind of element in terms of giving feedback and then going back to the drawing board and starting again and then giving feedback and then going to an exec and then giving feedback and it's a little bit more of a ladder in terms of you know, doing all the work and, and getting any sign off for it. But that's just that's just part of the nature of the job and part of the nature of different jobs and who you're working for. Um, in terms of the actual work, although, of course, there are lots of hours that go into um, doing this and a Tuesday is kind of no different to a Saturday. Really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do try and um, I've always I've always very, very much been a family man. So I really try and keep some kind of not necessarily regularity, what well, kind of regularity, because I will make sure that I'll have a couple of hours in the evening where, I don't know, I'll just 
have dinner with my wife and catch up and everything um, before going back to work. And there are times where that can't happen, but I work very hard to try and make that happen and to take time off on like a Saturday night and watch a film or something um, wherever possible. And usually when it gets to crunch time, I might not be able to do that. But I think having put in the work early on to take time off is is really important. And I think it's important to talk about that as well so that we're not all just talking about 20 hour days for eight hours on end, which I'm not sure that's so healthy. <laughs> so in terms of your kind of routine during the day, would you rather get up earlier yeah. and finish earlier or start later and finish later? Because some people are very different in that respect. I'm, I kind of do both. So I kind of, I'm up and I'm working by eight or if things are really crunchy, 7.30. Um, and then I'll kind of work through, I always take time off for meals. So I always have like an hour off for lunch and as I say, a couple of hours off for dinner, um, as well. And then I'm just basically working between that and then working in the evening. And again, if things are really tight, then I'll be working, (laughs) working quite late, (laughs) but I will always still get up for eight in the morning. So I'll try and keep any nights of ridiculously small sleep to a minimum they do happen they are needed it, but i will try and keep that as as short a period as possible yeah. but I, I don't really have a preference in terms of being an early riser and working or being a late worker i can kind of do both it just just depends on how busy things are yeah totally so in terms of the writing you work with a lot of different instrumental palettes not entirely restricted to orchestral uh, how do you like to write and what's the approval process? For me, uh, it just depends on what kind of sparks that initial idea and that initial inspiration. And the thing that I love about working with film and TV is just that any kind of music you can think of goes as long as there is a story and a film and you happen to be working on that story and that film, then whether it's kazoos and didgeridoo and I don't know <laughs> a banjo then that's fine as it, it works as long as you find that particular film then it it totally works and I've always really looked up to composers who both can move around stylistically including pulling on different influences and combining them but who who also have their own sound um, and it's not just a case of they can do everything but you know you can't really tell if it's them um, so I've always really looked up to composers who can do that. And that's very much what I kind of try and do um, and pulling as many influences as possible and listen to as much music as possible as well. So it really depends on who I'm working with and what kind of conversation we have. And maybe they'll tell me about a particular character and we're, we're trying to figure out what kind of theme that character needs, or maybe it's something a little bit more stylistic about the film that's being made or TV series that's being made but there's always something that sparks an idea and I love that the the toolkit if you will musically is just totally wide and it just depends on people being open to you coming up with fun or crazy ideas sure so do you prefer to I mean I know a lot of people don't listen to music when they're writing are you one of those people uh no I tried that and (laughs) it didn't work it really didn't work because I, I found that I just, I almost started just regurgitating myself constantly and I didn't really feel like that was healthy. 
So I did try that and I thought that it just doesn't work for me. But what does work is listening to music that's very different to the music that I'm writing. And so I, I won't, I mean, I don't listen to much film music anyway, uh, you know, away from kind of picture, not because stuff isn't great. It is great. I just, I really want to try as much as possible to get influences from outside of the world of film and TV. Yep. So the John Powell style of thinking there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. So I, if I'm working on something that's, I don't know, like a string quartet, I might be listening to like pop musicals or something, oh, wow. or I'll be listening to some Chinese music or, or Indian classical music or whatever it is, but I'll just be listening to different things. And I try and cycle through different types of music every kind of few weeks as well. So I find that just, I, I still get inspiration that way. And hopefully I get inspiration from a world that's very different to what I'm writing. And then that influences what I'm writing in a really, really positive way. Oh, awesome. So in terms of the approval process, can you run us through how, how that works? Um, not just in Doctor Who, yes. but in any production that you've worked on. Yeah, it very much depends. I think that a lot of the stuff that I end up talking about or... or working on is a little bit it's a little bit of a committee in some way shape or form so and by committee what i mean is that either it's a committee because there isn't actually anyone who is directly in control creatively so yeah there's a director but there are writers and there are producers and they basically all have some kind of equal voice and that's where things can get very interesting and i find it really important to talk to people and to make sure they know that I need collated notes. I can't have seven different sets of notes coming from seven different people who all are, in theory, on the same level um, in terms of their authority and asking for different things. So that's the kind of process where it's a little bit more, not necessarily more tricky, it's just a different process of trying to get them all on the yeah. same page and make sure they know from the outset we all have to be moving in the same direction. <laughs> that differs to if I'm working with a director whereby we have a close relationship but there are producers involved and then it will be a case of I'm working with the director something is right or we think it's right it goes to the producers we get notes then I'm working again between the director to address those notes then it goes back to the producer then we might go back for another round of notes um, between myself and the director to address the second lot of producer notes then it goes to the, to the producer then uh, they're happy with it. So it goes to the exec producer. Then I get notes from the exec producer. So then we go <laughs> right back to the beginning. And I'm going through all these notes with the uh, director again, then working back up to the producer, then going back down, then working back up, then back up to the exec. So that's those kind of situations are the most um, kind of prolonged in terms of sign off because it is just a long time to get everything yeah. um, signed off in, in that way. Or a situation like Doctor Who where I'm literally working directly with the execs. And so it's much shorter because their yes and their no is the highest yeah. yes and no that I can possibly get. So that is a much quicker process um, in that sense. How do you keep track of everything that's going on? Are you using a cue sheet? Because there's so many changes and it's so easy to get behind on something like this when you've got, you know, yeah. V1 and then suddenly you're at V7 all of a sudden and, you know, they say, oh, we, we need to go back to V2 and, you know, it can get very confusing very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do have a spreadsheet and all the notes that I get go into that spreadsheet. So 
people give notes differently, but I generally tend to go for written notes and a conversation um, because I find that it means that we all have a clear record of what's been spoken about. But by the very nature of trying to talk about why music is right or wrong, it's just so difficult just to write down a few notes and it's, it's so much easier to have a conversation. So um, I find that both really work because usually there's something that's been written that they can't quite articulate and it's either they it's either something small that they then give like a whole page to because they can't articulate it and it seems like it's a big deal but it's actually tiny or you know it's something else similar but related so i will get all of those notes and then i have a spreadsheet and um obviously i have all the cues written down and so the notes for each specific cue will go into the specific cell and then, you know, the next, I've got version one, version two, version three, version four, and however many it kind of takes. And then, of course, in my own sessions, I'm a real stickler for organization. <laughs> I think that uh, if you attempt, like, especially TV, if, you, if you're not organized, I, yeah. I just don't think you make it through in one piece at all. Absolutely. And it does scare me sometimes, stories mm. that you hear from people yeah. <laughs> about not putting, like, the name of a particular cut or the particular version they're working to. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, It gosh. really is a classic story of somebody when they've done a V1 and they've moved on to V2, but they haven't named it V2. And then suddenly the score isn't matching up with oh. the door file and it's all getting very confusing. Um, and you, as you know, you don't want yeah, to be getting yeah. to the session sat there with 50 or 100 players oh. going, oh, is this V1 or <laughs> is it V2? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Oh, or someone does V1 and they get to V3 and then their notes are, oh, we preferred version one and they didn't oh, save it as no. a separate version. And it's yeah. just, no. So I'm extremely organised. And I think that's really important because as a composer, you are the head of department, which means you have a department. You have, whether it's having orchestrators and engineers and whatever who you are essentially their boss yeah and it's really really important to make sure that you do all that you can do so that they can work to the best of their ability because all they're trying to do is help you to create the best work possible and so for me it's really important to be organized so that the producers and directors and so forth are happy so that I can have peace of mind that when I'm at episode eight and I don't know, they changed the cut. I'm not tearing my hair out. And also, you know, in terms of family time as well, I'm not losing family time because I haven't um, been organized. But then also for those I will then be working with, if it's my engineer or orchestrator or whatever it is, that then they have the work in the most organized way so that they are not having to worry or stress about things they shouldn't have to stress about, like audio files at 441 K rather than 48 K and then and then it all moves and changes and it's all like well what's it supposed to be and you know all the kind of headaches that I know you will have experienced as well <laughs> at some point yeah and I, I was just about to ask I think the bane of a TV composer's life is you know changes and requests for changes how do you deal with those sorts of problems that inevitably come up along the way i mean some people say talk about kind of developing a thick skin and 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 maybe they're very they're very much right and I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to disagree with that but i think it is a case of understanding that it's part of the job there will be changes just as much as it's a part of the job of your mix engineer 
who you're working with and giving all these notes to because, oh, I don't know, that one thing is just not quite right. <laughs> and so I think you have to, I think it's really important to kind of understand that everyone's in the same boat. Your mix engineer getting notes from you is in the same boat as you are when you're getting notes from the director or producer or whatever it is or whoever it is. And hopefully you're working with great people. That doesn't always happen, but hopefully you are. And they're just trying to describe what they're looking for. And sometimes that's really hard. It's like, as a composer, trying to talk about the difference between cameras that you need with a cinematographer. And they're like, <laughs> I, I don't know, like a red camera or like whatever. And you're just like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's not easy and it's not easy for them. But hopefully you're working with great people who just want to make the best product possible and trust you to do that and want your inputs in doing that and achieving it. So it's just part of the job. And it's just a case of sometimes it is going to hurt when you get a note and you think, oh, but that cue was perfect. Why would you want to change that? But hopefully you make the changes and think, oh my gosh, they're a genius. Why didn't I think of that the first time? Because you're getting closer to what's right for the story um, and what's right for telling the story in the way that the people you're working with want it to be told as well. So yeah, it's just part of the job and it's just a case of, you know, it is a collaboration. You, you've got to be open to changes and you've got to make those changes and also try and still make it the best music that it can be as well because sometimes people will ask you for a change that doesn't really make sense musically and you've just got to figure out how to do that but also make the music the best that it can be as well rather than, oh, here's this really weird, awkward thing that doesn't make sense. And so I think it's really a case of um, just trying to make it the best you can you can make it whilst also making sure that if someone is to look at the notes they gave you and listen to the music, they can hear that you have actually made those changes. The Series 12 soundtrack is out now. Is there any music in there that didn't appear in the TV show because either it was rejected or it didn't quite work? Not this time. I did with Series 11. There are a couple of things I, I put on there that weren't quite as they were in the series, but not this time. And it, it's just a case of what happens. Um, with Series 11, there are a couple of moments where, for one, there wasn't a clear and total depiction of um, the 13th Doctor's theme that was used in the series. So I really wanted to make sure that actually you could tell what, what her new theme was, which is why there was, there was a single release and it was just that. So it was like, this is the theme in its entirety. And also there are a couple of moments where we were kind of experimenting a little bit with series 11. Like there are moments where we changed what was happening with the end credits music and so forth. So there are a couple of times where we experimented and it didn't quite happen. I thought, well, musically it works. It'd be great to put this on a soundtrack album, but with series 12, it just, it just differs in it. So it wasn't quite the same situation and there wasn't quite anything that happened in the same way where I felt like, Oh, actually that, previous version would be really great on the album um so not this time around but i'm totally up to it in the right situation so you've written the music on your own um and the next step is to work with an orchestra to get it recorded who else is involved and what do you send them before the session so usually there are a few other people involved um there's an orchestrator who takes what i've written and essentially translates it into music that is on a sheet of paper that a musician can read and part of the reason why that's the case is because of time and it's also a case of 
generally how most composers work these days where they're not writing at a piano and, and then with a pencil into manuscript paper for the whole process. But usually there's a computer involved and they're writing into some software whereby they can make demos of the work that they're doing and send them to the director and producers and they can get feedback on that work. So once that's done, then that material is essentially sent to this orchestrator um, who may also work with a copyist or someone who works with music preparation is another name for it, whereby they're both essentially working together to make sure that there's music in front of musicians that they can read, as well as a recording engineer who will be the person who is actually recording the orchestra or instruments that are being used at the recording session and a mix engineer who will take all of that material that's been recorded plus anything else that may have been recorded or made and then combine all of those elements into the best possible end product to make sure that it is ready to be sent to the final mix or dub, if you will, of the um, of the whole episode or of the film, whereby all of the audio elements, the music, the sound design, the dialogue, everything comes together and is then presented in the best possible way so that it's ready to go on TV or ready to go um, into a film at the cinema. And in terms of deliverables to the orchestrator, what are you sending them? So as mentioned, most composers these days are working with a computer and writing into a computer. And so when I've had sign off from the director or the producer, then that session, which I've created on my computer program, which for me is something called Logic, which works on Macs, then... I will take that session and I'll send it to my orchestrator along with an audio demo. And any particular notes might be sent by email if there's there are any kind of general things across the particular episode which may need to be mentioned. But it's predominantly that demo and that session file which is sent to the orchestrator and then we'll have a back and forth once he's written out the music and we'll kind of t- talk about things, add some more detail and I'll you know, give him notes, he'll make some changes and then eventually we'll have the final product. Lovely, thank you so much. So the c- recording session is kind of the pinnacle. I always think it's the pinnacle of the, the, you know, the TV composer's job. They've done all the writing you know, at home in their own studio. Yeah. And now, you know, the time has come where you, you really get to hear the music and it's, it's full form, fully realised by the best players. Yeah. What, how does that feel to you? And how did it feel on your, you know, does it feel any, any different to your first time? It does. I think for me, because before wanting to be a composer, I really wanted to be a record producer, which is part of the reason why I don't conduct. Not because I didn't go to all of my lessons at music school, because I did, <laughs> but because I just prefer being in the control room and being able to hear it as close as possible to the end product, especially if it's a very hybrid score. And, you know, I use hybrid in the widest sense, not just a a very narrow definition of that, but just whatever. It's orchestra, orchestral elements and other stuff. So I prefer to be in the booth kind of hearing that. And I think it can all depend. Like, it's amazing recording with live players, but I think there's something particularly special about an orchestra. Um, And I didn't really get that until I did... Uh, a bigger orchestral session uh, whereby everyone was playing together in the same room and 
it, it is amazing when you've got, don't get me wrong, <laughs> it's amazing when you've got strings or anything. Like it really is. And the players are fantastic and you have such a great time. But there's a special magical air to actually having an orchestra and they're all playing in the same room. And um, yeah. those are moments that you will remember forever and ever and ever. But having said that, there are also other sessions which can be, again, truly amazing. Um, I did a session last year, which was for Doctor Who, which was with a singer who was singing in an Indian style. And I would be surprised if that session is ever tops wow. in my life because it was truly... I know it's quite a big thing to say, but genuinely for everyone in the room, he was just phenomenal and outstanding and 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 magical and it was just um it was a very very special moment because he basically he knocked everything out of the park all the time to the point where it became really genuinely hand on heart difficult to choose a take because it was like well I want all of them all at the same time <laughs> um so <laughs> yeah i mean for me recording with musicians is just it's just the best thing. I love it. And th that's why I do as much of it as I possibly can. It's why on my stuff, usually what you're hearing is live and it's not like, I don't generally use samples with live. It's generally wow. okay. purely live. Um, and I just absolutely love working with, with players. And I do remember the first session I had in London and I remember that that was very special because it's quite difficult to, to sometimes articulate what it's like you're working with phenomenal people who make it sound like they've been rehearsing something yeah. for a few days and it's only take one um, and it just gets better and they can move around to anything that you want to do stylistically. Um, yeah. It's, we're very, very spoilt in London. It really sure. is a, a privilege. Do you have to fight f to get players or is it something that just is suggested to you at an early stage when you join a production? I think that it's a little bit, maybe it's a little bit of both, but then also I think now for me, it's becoming a little bit of a uh, reputation thing, just a little bit in terms of, I think for whatever, and I only say that because someone had said that to me, like an editor had said that to me in terms of like, oh yeah, you do lots of live. And I was like, well, I don't really think about it that way, but great. If I get to work with musicians, I'm not going to complain. I th definitely early on, it was a choice for me that to invest all, most, all of the budget <laughs> on live players. <laughs> or, or certainly it was, I would just do anything that I could to get players on if there were meant to be players for a particular part. And it's a case of just knowing the value of having a live player in a room recording something, even if it's, you know, you, you I don't know, borrowing your mate's living room or something just to get a player, just to get um, their part to be live rather than kind of keeping hold of that as a sample. It's not to say that samples aren't great, that they are. And there are so many people who can do amazing things. But for me, I've just found that people have really responded to that when I've, when I've made sure that something's yeah. live. And I genuinely, I just love working with live players. I really do. So if something's meant to be live, I will do everything that I can to make it recorded. And I haven't always done that. So it's, you know, really early on, I didn't do that. I would just do it as samples. And so it's a case of having been through that and kind of just deciding that, you know, actually I really prefer just getting players on this if I can. And I've really felt like, apart from the sheer enjoyment of that 
um, and how fulfilling that is as well with your music, I really feel like I've seen the benefits um, career-wise as well. I think that leads really nicely onto a question about the final delivery. How involved are you in the process, you know, the rest of the process in terms of mixing, mastering and delivering to the broadcaster? Uh, super involved, <laughs> like really, really involved. Um, I think, again, going back to the whole thing about being a head of department, you're a head of department because the production is essentially saying, you look after the music, that's it, it's your responsibility. The music is meant to be delivered to a particular standard and made to a particular standard. And it's your responsibility to make sure that happens. And so for me, there's that side of it. And there's also the side of um, the whole thing about originally wanting to be a record producer when I was very young. And then just being really into recording and mixing and that being a really, really important part of everything. Even if it's purely orchestral, that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of production that goes into that. So with all of those sides, for me, I'm really involved. Like the mix is not just a case of Gertz gets sent everything and then he does a mix and then that's it. Or I'm like, oh yeah, just, you know, make the challenge a bit quieter. That's it. It's very involved. It's very much about choosing the right kind of reverb and the right EQ and testing things and playing with things and, you know, depending on how much time there is to make sure that the the right sound is achieved. Um, and it's totally the same when it comes to mastering, um, which is only ever for me when it comes to a soundtrack album release, but it's the same thing. And we're talking about that nah, there's a bit too much, a bit too much compression at this moment or a bit too much limiting and you can hear it ducking and that's really it's not as satisfying and, and or, or anything to do with any EQ that's applied as well. So I am definitely very involved in the whole process. And when the programme finally airs, how do you like to watch the finished product? I always watch it with, um, at the very least with my wife, if not with family, but it depends if it's a TV series or if, or if it's like a film. So with a film, then I probably will go to the cinema with family and friends. And if it's like a TV series, then I'll just watch it with my wife because... For me, these are all the people who have to not quite suffer through, <laughs> through the work that I do, but but don't get to see me as much or, or talk to me as much. Um, and so it's, I don't know, I kind of view it as a journey for everyone as opposed to, oh, it's just my thing. Like at the end of the day, if I have to, if I have to work all evening, it's my wife who I don't get to see and she doesn't get to see me. And there, there should be some... The least I can do is actually sit down and watch it and hopefully she's, she enjoys it. And then it's a case of, um, you know, this is this is why we went through all those times where we didn't get to see each other, whatever it is. Um, and the same with, with family. So for me, that's a really important part and a really joyful perk of being able to do this work where people can see what you've worked on and why you've taken so many hours to work on something and hopefully they enjoy it as well. Thanks so much, Sagan. That's really insightful. It's a pleasure. <laughs> well, what an interview. That was amazing. Wasn't it just? I love the, if you don't feel sad about something, it might be that you haven't cared enough about it. Yes. Yeah, That's very, very true. Very poignant. I like the fact that when receiving notes, he mentioned that someone may have come up with something that he wouldn't have thought of 
which then helps the music get closer mm. to the story. I thought that was really interesting. Also, when you're doing the changes, how you have to still make it the best music it can be so that it makes sense musically. Because that would just take the viewer straight out of whatever they were watching if it was some sort of bizarre edit in the music. Yeah, it's not a that'll do approach. You know, you really need yeah. to spend time fine-tuning and making sure the changes, like you say, are, are as good as they can be. Yeah, that and the fact that he likes to have not just the notes sent to him, but then a conversation. He mentioned somebody could go on for ages about one thing because they don't know how to articulate it, but it could be a tiny little thing. And so if you just have that conversation, that gets that done and dusted without having to try and decipher what two paragraphs of waffling about something is. It is harder to articulate yourself in an email than it is over a phone call. And I think people do really miss out on something as simple as talking to someone over a phone. Yeah. So it's quite it's quite interesting that he gets the chance to, to do that because directors and producers are obviously extremely busy people. Well, that's it. It's usually a time-based thing. Mm. It's not that they don't want to do that. It's the fact that they haven't got time to do that. No. So Tristan, as an orchestrator, what Sagan was saying, did all that make sense? And in turn, when we're speaking to an orchestrator in the next episode is there anything that you would like to ask them which makes that connection because Sagan was talking about delivery of certain files to the orchestrator wasn't he yeah I mean it completely related back to my work when I've been working with other composers as an orchestrator and I think it'd be really interesting to ask our next guest how he takes those MIDI files and turns it into notation that players can read from I'd be really interested in hearing his opinions on that. Well, I think Tristan did a wonderful job interviewing Sagan. Absolutely. I believe you're going now, Tristan. If you could just make sure the TARDIS comes back with half a tank of petrol. Yeah, and maybe an orchestrator. That'd be great. (laughs) I can't guarantee the petrol, but I'll make sure I bring back an orchestrator. Thanks a lot, guys. Fantastic. Thanks, Tristan. See ya. Bye. And off he goes. Well, that went well, Dan. Didn't it just? So, uh, is that a wrap? Uh... <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I tip my hat. That's a wrap. How do you find us? makingasoundtrack.com will tell you all you need to know. Links to the podcast, social media links, and there's information about us. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would make our day if you could give us a positive rating or review. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit that share button and recommend it to someone. Okay, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Not going to read, need a bio <laughs> and choose a photo for Tristan. <laughs> I was thinking you might go Anchorman. <laughs> <laughs> F- you, San Diego. <laughs>